Our scripture this morning is from Matthew chapter 2. When the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. So it was coming up to Christmas, and a boy named Sammy asked his mom if he could have a new bike. So she told him that the best idea would be to write to Santa Claus. Dear Santa, he started, I have been a very good boy and would like a bike for Christmas. But he wasn't very happy when he read that over, so he decided to try again, and this time he wrote, Dear Santa, I'm a good boy most of the time, and I'd like a bike for Christmas. He read it back and still wasn't happy with that one either. He tried a third version. Dear Santa, I could be a good boy if I tried really hard, and it would really motivate me if I had a new bike. He read that one too, and he still wasn't satisfied, so he decided to go out for a walk while he thought about a better approach. Just a few houses down, he passed a house with a small nativity in their garden. He crept up, stuffed the figure of Mary into his jacket, and hurried home and hid it under his bed. And he wrote this letter. <clears throat> Dear Jesus, if you want to see your mother again, you'd better tell Santa to send me a new bike. <laughs> Christmas time often has kids reflecting on how naughty or nice that they've been, often with mixed results, right? This whole reward-punishment thing can only go so far. And this morning, we're going to reflect a little bit on the tension between naughty and nice, but maybe not in the way that you would expect. I want to frame this tension within our theme of love this morning, to reflect on how our responses toward others are often fueled by our passions and our desires expressed in the things that we love and value and care most about. We have been working through some of the birth narratives uh, uh, text specifically found in Matthew's gospel over this last month. Today we've got a king who does some very wicked, naughty things, right? As well as some parents who do some very noble things, some very nice things, even though it maybe wasn't recognized as such at the time. So let's talk about who we have in our text this morning. First, 
We've got pyramid. Maybe. Aaron the Great. Oh, no, the text came only in black on this. It was supposed to... That's all right. You'll still follow, even if you don't have slides to go along with. But... Before we talk about Herod, let's talk about the 2017 children's film called The Star. Have you guys ever watched this? Anybody with kids watched it at least? Lisa's watched it. It's a good one. Uh, it depicts the story of the nativity from the perspective of the animals in the story, in particular, a donkey named Boaz. Now, predictably, they take some liberties with the story as they go along with the source material, both to make it fit their plot for the animals and also to make it more suitable for children. I still highly recommend the film. It's actually it's a really good one. Uh, but one of the major changes that they made is that when Herod became suspicious of the wise men's news, he secretly sent one of his own henchmen to follow and, and try to figure out what was going on. Here we go. We've got, got our text now. Donkey finds out about this plot, the henchman, and he, he tries to follow after Mary Joseph and tries to save the day. Uh, the move, it kind of heightens the action of the film because it makes it all a little more personal, right? Um, but the reality of Herod's actions were far more grim when you think about it. As Matthew tells us, Herod wasn't so thoughtful of a person as to have sent a personal guard to track down uh, this, this infant Jesus. Instead, like the hardened Pharaoh of the Exodus days, Herod simply ordered that all male ch children under the age of two in Bethlehem be wiped out. I'd call this an act of profane passion. Passionate because it was a response of deep emotion and conviction. Profane because it degraded and disregarded the precious and sacred lives of children. Three questions. One, did it actually happen? There's some people who question this. There's not really a historical record of this kind of thing happening. Uh, Matthew's gospel is the only piece of historical evidence that we have that this event even took place. It's caused some people to doubt the whole incident. But it's not really surprising uh, that we might uh, not see this chronicled out, outside of this in other history books. Uh, for this reason, Bethlehem is a somewhat small town. It's rural. Given its size, historians actually reckon that the massacre maybe would have only included uh, somewhere in the vicinity of about 10 to 30 boys uh, at, at this, uh, of that age. But that's a heartrending tragedy for Bethlehem, right? It may not have been historical news for the, the rest of the empire, but for Bethlehem, that was significant. It would have been remembered. Uh, and it would not have significantly stood out against the horrific acts that Herod did otherwise in his career as well. He was a pretty bad dude. He was not a good uh, person. He was born in Palestine at the time of political turmoil. Uh, his father, uh, Antipater, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, he was an, an ambitious and clever soldier who rose rapidly in the service of the king. Eventually, he ousted the king from his throne and took it for himself. Um, Antipater appointed his son, Herod, as governor of Galilee, and six years later, Mark Antony made him tetrarch. Another six years after that, the Senate in Rome named him the king of Judea, gave him an, an army to make good that claim. Now, Herod was a bit of a good ruler in some senses. He was a clever politician. He was one of the most prolific builders of the ancient world. He's most known for his reconstruction and expansion of the Jerusalem temple. But he also did a, quite a bit to try to raise the standing of the Jews among the Roman Empire. A fun fact about Herod the Great is that he actually presided over the Olympic Games for a time 
at, at that time, even as today, sometimes the games had trouble being funded. And so they would look for people who would uh, help to, uh, to offset the costs. And Herod was so eager to have some notoriety and, and people see him that he gave much of his own wealth and giving in order to, uh, to have some standing. It uh, raised his standing in the eyes of the empire, kind of lowered his standing among the Jews in the area because he was cozying up to Rome and, and the Gentiles of the area. Pretty much everything that Herod did was an attempt to make up for his birth. He came from Arab origins on both sides, a fact which his Jewish subjects never really forgave. Herod resented and envied the love that his subjects had for the former royal family, his in-laws, the Hasmoneans. By the end of his reign, uh, the time when the Bethlehem massacre would have occurred, he ended up murdering most of the members of that family, his wife, their two sons, his young brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, and his wife's grandfather. Herod was clever, greatly skilled, had a keen eye for beauty and prestige, but he was also a wicked, self-centered, violently paranoid ruler whose passion for his throne led him to, a, to profane the sacred value of life by ordering the death of anyone who challenged him, even infants. But where Herod went so inconceivably wrong, uh, we, we do see another example in this text of love and passion directed in a positive way, that of Joseph. And Mary as well. Can you do the next slide for me? Joseph, Mary as well, they, they both demonstrate the same sort of love and care, but the text mostly focuses on Joseph this morning, so we'll talk about his actions. Joseph, like Herod, demonstrates a kind of profane passion, but in opposite terms. Joseph was a man completely committed to faithfully observing and upholding God's sacred law. That's why he was so conflicted at the news of Mary's pregnancy. He loved her. He didn't want harm to come for her, but he also wanted to do right by God. So to put this decision in more perspective for you as well, we, we know that the Jews were living under the Roman occupation centuries after their initial exile at the hands of the Babylonians, and they were expectantly waiting for God's Messiah. And remember, the whole reason they were lost to exile in the first place because there, was because their ancestors failed to live faithfully. They had broken the covenant. And so now they were intensely interested in keeping the Torah because they believed that any sin that entered into the community could endanger everyone's hope that God would deliver them. This is why the Pharisees and Sadducees had so much influence during Jesus' time. People wanted to know how they could stay in, in covenant, on the nice list, so to speak. And getting pregnant out of wedlock was clearly not on that list, right? Not on the right list. It wasn't the right thing for Joseph to do. The right thing for Joseph to do, according to the law experts, was to make sure that Mary's presumed sin was revealed and punished. So Joseph planned to do the right thing in the most compassionate way that he could conceive, to simply break off the marriage quietly. But then we have the dream, the angelic visit, the insane announcement that Mary was in fact telling the truth. This was God's son conceived by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, like Mary, asked no questions, just immediately obeyed. He simply woke up and committed the rest of his life to taking care of this family. 
But Joseph's actions could have been called profane by his peers because they completely disregarded the conventional norms of his day for what was good and right and proper. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. Sometimes following God's will for our lives means making decisions that fly in the face of reason, good manners, or even sacred duty. It means doing right simply because it's right. Here's the next slide here. There's a psychologist named Lawrence Kohlberg. He actually has a really helpful theory on the stages of our moral development that I, wanted to, I think applies here. He has three stages, the pre-conventional stage, conventional and post-conventional. In the pre-conventional stage, it's all about doing what is right, basically because of reward or punishment, right? This is like my twins, who are much more likely to do the right thing if Paw Patrol is anyhow involved as a reward. The second stage is the conventional stage, where our morals are kind of based upon meeting the expectations of others around us, the social norms. I would argue that this is like Ebenezer Scrooge. We were watching uh, The Christmas Carol again recently, and I was thinking about these uh, stages and, and realizing, you know, the only real improvement that he made is he realizes that other people really don't like him. He gets kind of upset that people are talking about him so badly after his death. And so the positive change that he makes really seems to be in this second stage, that he actually is starting to care about how other people perceive him. The third stage, though, post-conventional stage of moral development, is about actually developing an internalized value set, doing what is right because it is right, whether we will actually get any reward based on it, whether other people will view us positively or not, but because we have come to the, this conviction that this is the right thing to do, so even if people dislike me, even if I get punished or suffer for doing this thing, I'm going to do it because it is what is right. This is like the civil rights activists willing to be jailed for protesting segregation. This is missionaries who are willing to die just to bring the good news of Jesus to those who haven't heard it. This is like any of us who intentionally scale back our schedule or our spending just to have the margin to see what God is doing in our midst and to serve those who are our neighbors. This is like a pious carpenter from Galilee giving up his safety and his reputation to protect and raise the Son of God, no matter the cost. Herod's decision-making seemed to exist squarely in that first stage, What's going to go well for him? Maybe you could make some arguments about the second as well. But all he cares about is his own well-being. Joseph's decision shows that he's far beyond caring about his own reward or punishment. and It doesn't really matter to him much what other people will think. He's doing what is right because it is right. His passion for God seems like profanity to his community, but it's the purest love that there is. Then, there's Jesus. The so-called profanity of Joseph's love and devotion for God and his family is overshadowed still by the profane passion of Christ. There are three prophecies mentioned in this text, all of which are interesting because none of them were originally prophecies anyone would have connected to Messiah. In verse 15, our prophecy number one, it seems to suggest that Jesus had to flee Egypt to fulfill the prophecy from Hosea 11.1. 1. 
But Hosea's prophecy is actually referring backward to Israel here as God's son, at least in its original context. Uh, Israel as God's son called out of Egypt during the Exodus, lamenting then how they have since turned away. And the second prophecy, in Matthew 2.18, it quotes a prophecy from Jeremiah 35.15 to describe the mourning taking place after the infant slaughter in Bethlehem. But originally that prophecy referred to the great mourning that Israel would experience in exile. Jacob's wife, Rachel, is pictured as a personification of all Israelite mothers grieving over their children's fate. But Jeremiah goes on to speak a word of comfort that their children will once again return to the land by God's provision. And in Matthew 2.23, we have our third prophecy. It mentions a prophecy that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. But that prophecy doesn't actually exist anywhere in the Old Testament. At best, there's some wordplay found in Isaiah 11.1. And since the, the root here for, uh, for branch is uh, NSR, that's kind of how we transliterate it in, in English, uh, Nazar, we see the wordplay with Nazarene. Nazar, Nazarene, the branch that comes out. Now, what's interesting here is that Matthew uses all three of these prophecies in different ways than we might have expected. Rather than a simple prediction fulfillment sort of reference, Matthew is noting how all of Israel's life, their past, their present, and their future, it comes to fulfillment in the person of Jesus. His life seems to literally relive the story of Israel, experiencing anew the same journey out of Egypt as well as the suffering of both Egypt and through exile. And Jesus is the comfort of Jeremiah's prophecy. And finally, by connecting the Isaiah prophecy to the town of Nazareth, Matthew is painting this vivid picture of the humble glory of the Messiah. Interestingly, the town of Nazareth was likely founded by Jews who had returned from exile and yearning for the hope of the Messiah. They gave their uh, new town a special name to connect it with their vision for salvation only to find that their town didn't amount to much. Nazareth later received a bad reputation when a, a Roman garrison was installed, seemingly quenching any hope they had for being a holdout for resistance. Out of all the Gentile-infested towns in Galilee, Nazareth was amongst, amongst the worst. It's likely why the disciple Nathaniel balks at Jesus when he's first told about him. The guy from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like Herod... Jesus would have fought against people's expectations about his upbringing. But that's about the extent of their similarities. Let's go to the, we have more on this, or is that in black as well? While Herod was petty, self-obsessed, uh, a petty, self-obsessed ruler who did whatever was needed to protect himself, Jesus is God incarnate, literally the only being worthy of praise. And yet he laid all of that down just to come and save us. Jews and Muslims even today balk at the suggestion of a, the holy God of the universe being able to, much less willing to, come and, and take human flesh, be in the weak, fleshly form of a human. But the gospel witness is that he did. He did it. That's the scandalous news of Christmas, the profane passion of Jesus. The king of kings was born in a manger, come down to give up everything, 
be with us, the least of these. So as we reflect on our own passions this morning, things that we love, the, the desires that we have that bubble up into our actions, we might ask ourselves, what are we willing to give up in order to receive and why? Are we, like Herod, willing to ignore or even directly harm others to get our reward? Or are we like Jesus, willing to give up of ourselves so that his beloved children may truly live? May we join him in the manger. May we flee with him to Egypt and back again to an obscure city in Galilee. May we join him in the alleys and the byways, calling the least to his side. May we, may we take up our cross with him, that we may truly find life. May we profane the goods of this world, that we may honor the passion of our God. Let's pray. Lord, I thankful again and again for the ways in which you seem to in invade the secular with your sacred presence. And we find your goodness, nearness, in places which we might not think it should show up. And yet you're there. You are good. And you are drawing people to life and light, transformation, Forgiveness, reconciliation. We pray, Lord, that you might, in all of the ways in which we have a veil over our eyes and our vision, that you might strip it away. All of the ways in which we have constructed our own vision and system of what is good and, and right and appropriate, that we might fix our eyes solely on you to know and see and appreciate is truly good because we know you. As we will have so many distractions in the coming days, so many things to celebrate, we pray that in the midst of all of that, that we would not lose sight of you, our reason to celebrate. The author of life gave of yourself be among the least Seek, find, and save. Thank you for that gift. Amen.